from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I think that everyone here this morning knows what a misnomer is, right? The uh, definition of it is the use of a wrong name or wrong designation. You call something something that it is not. And there's so many in today's language that we, we don't even think about them, right? I mean, do you really, when you go get a peanut out of the cabinet, sit there and grab a peanut and go, this really isn't a nut, right? It's technically a legume. That, that's a misnomer. We don't, we don't think about it because it, it's not really important. Light year is not a measure of time. It is a measure of distance. But again, we don't think about it. In the South, none of you, when you go outside and, and we see them all coming up from the ground and go, hey, look at the fireflies, go, you know, that is neither on fire nor is it a fly. You know, it's, it's a flying beetle. It's just, it's just something that we use that we don't think about. It. It's just what it's called. It's what it's become to be, and that's, that's what it is. When you open your Bibles, and I hope you're in John 17, but when you open your Bibles, not to John 17, but to Matthew 6, and you don't need to turn there, Above Matthew 6, in most Bibles, it says the Lord's Prayer. And we take it for that. If somebody says, stand and let's recite the Lord's Prayer. You stand up, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know what it is, and you just say it. I bet none of you have ever thought, that's kind of a misnomer. For that is not actually the Lord's Prayer. For a couple different reasons. One is he gives it to the disciples because the question is, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then he says, all right, when you pray, pray like this. So he's telling the disciples how to pray. But more importantly, there's a verse in the Lord's Prayer that we pray that we don't think about that Jesus can't pray. Have you ever thought about that? Do you you understand that where it says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us? That that's talking about sin? And Jesus, if that is the Lord's Prayer, Jesus can't pray, Father, forgive me for my sins. For that would make Him sinful and not the perfect Lamb of God that can take away the sins of the world. A more accurate name for Matthew 6 would be the Disciples' Prayer. That's what Matthew 6 is. I say all that because when we come to John 17, John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Now, again, in your non-inspired section headings, for instance, in in the ESV, it says the high priestly prayer. That is usually what it is designated. Sometimes it's called the magisterial prayer, the farewell prayer, and, and other titles as well. And I think this is a place in Scripture where we need to remember that the headings that they put there are just to make it easier for us and not inspired, where simpler would be much better. John 17 is the Lord's prayer. All of John 17 is Jesus praying That is what he is doing. And what's so amazing about John 17, it's it's really, 
I try not to, when I, when I work on sermons, I always inevitably come to a part where I go, this is the most important passage of Scripture there is. Every passage is important. Every passage is also unique. And the uniqueness of John 17 is that we have communication between the Trinity. We have God the Son speaking to God the Father. And what's amazing about that is it's recorded for us so that we will know it. God wanted us to hear how Jesus spoke to the Father before the cross. It's just, I find that so incredibly powerful. And this morning, while we're just going to study the first few verses, we want to read all of the prayer. It's going to be hard over the next several weeks to divide it up, but we're going to. But each time, I want us to read the whole thing. This is kind of like the woman at the well. The whole story needs to be told. All of the prayer needs to be read. And it says in verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That is the Lord's prayer. And this morning, when we read through that, it it can really be broken down into about three sections. Typically, it's broken down in verses 1 through 5 with the title, Jesus Prays for Himself. It's not quite accurate, but that's usually the designation. Beginning in verse 6, verse 6 to verse 8 is kind of a transition uh, verses that bridge the first one to the second part where it says Jesus in verse 9 prays for His disciples. And then in verse 20, Jesus is actually praying for us. Right? Verse 20, those who will believe, that, 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 is, that is me and you. And so this morning, my attempt was to get through verse 8. We're only getting through verse 5, and that only surprises me, not you. But the first few verses only focus on God's glory. Focuses on glory. You see glory, glorify over and over and over this morning. And so that is what we want to focus on. And just the, the one heading that we're going to work through this morning is this. Jesus is glorified as He glorifies the Father. Jesus is glorified as He glorifies the Father. When we read this prayer and we think about it, we need to kind of, in the back of our minds, keep this thought as well. This is not a prayer of despondency. This is a prayer of victory. The last words before Jesus starts the prayer is, Take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is not with the cross just a few minutes, a few hours away, going to be, oh my goodness, oh woe is me, I can't believe what is happening. No, Jesus says, I've already won the victory, and the prayer is a victorious prayer as well. Which is why he starts off talking about glorifying the Father. Right? It says, after these things, after he has spoken to the disciples, the, the cross is just a few hours away, he's going to start talking to the Father because he knows what is happening. So he assumes the posture of prayer, right? Our posture of prayer is what? Heads down, eyes closed. That, that's how we pray. Most of the time in Scripture, when you look at prayer, prayer is with eyes open looking around to see what's going on. You pray while you pay attention. So Jesus lifts his head to heaven to look up like I am, I am focusing on God. Remember in the prayer uh, of the story of the Pharisee and the, the, the tax collector, when the Pharisee comes in to the temple and says, I'm glad I'm not like this Pharisee. And the Pharisee, remember, the Pharisee is looking up. Which way is the, the tax collector looking? He's looking down, even though he had his eyes open. And he was so ashamed of himself. But here, Jesus is, is taking that typical posture when you want to praise God and lift your voice up to him, looking up to God. And he's, he's looking up there, and he starts off with the, that, that word, Father. Father. You know, this is, again, one of those things that we don't, we don't recognize how revolutionary this is. Right? By the time Jesus is, is here, by the time the New Testament is, is, is occurring in real life, the Jews are not using God's name. Even today, even today, Orthodox Jews will not use God's name. If you go to a, an Orthodox Jewish website, and they're discussing God, they will write it G-D. They will not use His name. They will not utter His name. What they usually do is use the word name to represent God. 
They're so fearful that they're going to misuse God and take His name in vain that they won't even utter it. So they don't start their prayers with God. They also don't start their prayers with Father. Because to call God their Father... Even though in the Old Testament he says, look, I'm going to be the father of Abraham. I'm going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to be the, the, your father. I'm going to be the, you're going to be my people. Even though it's in Scripture, they wouldn't dare call God Father because in their minds to call God Father does not elevate us to a position of how much God loves us, but actually lowers God and shames God to bring God down to our level. And so we come and we just go, Father, okay, that's great. This is revolutionary for Jesus to start the prayers. Father, how do we pray? Our Father. Call God who is in heaven, Father. And in doing that, it reveals a level of intimacy of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. The same one that, that we can have, right? Because He just told us to pray. We pray in the Father's name, or excuse me, we pray to the Father through Jesus' name. We have that same level of intimacy. And you, get, you, you experience that every time you pray and you start your prayer with Father. So Jesus lifts His head up to the sky, starts with Father and says, My hour has come. It, 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 is, it is now here. Right Since the beginning of John, there's been this hour that is coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And Jesus says, the hour is now. The hour has arrived. The hour when Jesus would be crucified, when the Passover death of the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world would occur. It is here. It's now. And what is the first thing Jesus does? What's the first prayer that He utters? He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. We talk about the word glory and glorify in church a lot. Right? Glory is, is, is the noun, right? Glorify is the verb. And glory simply means majesty or splendor. Now what is really interesting, we've talked about this before, and this is going Tie in to the end, so, so remember this. What is really interesting about God's glory is that God's glory is chiefly His goodness. It's not exclusively, but chiefly. Exodus 33, Moses is on the mountain. He prays to God and says, God, show me your glory. And the Lord says to Moses, no, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. So God's glory and His goodness are tied together. To glorify then means to praise. So when we glorify God, what we are doing is we are praising or celebrating God's display of His goodness. And it is the appropriate response to God's goodness to glorify Him. So Jesus begins his prayer, doesn't end it. The first thing that he prays is, glorify the Son so that you may also be glorified. But the hour has come. How is the Son going to glorify the Father? How is the Father going to glorify the Son? He's going to glorify the Son on the cross. 
and on the cross, the Son will glorify the Father. Now, this is kind of, we got to think through this. Because we just look at the cross and go, all right, it's, it's the cross. And, and we have a problem that you may not realize. And the problem that we have comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22 through 23. Where Moses is recording what, Jesus, or what God has told him. And it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So Jesus is about to be a hanged man. He's about to go to the cross and hang on the cross. And so we have in Deuteronomy 21 that if he's hanged on a cross, or excuse me, hanged on a tree, he's a cursed man. Paul repeats this in Galatians 3.13. He says again, quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is, is, is cursed. How, how do we recognize the fact that, wait a second, the cross is, is a curse, but at the same time, the cross is a place of glory? For that to happen, God himself has to intervene. Something God has to do something. We can't do that. We can't override God's word and go, well, it's not really a curse. God's going to have to do something to prove for all to see that the cross isn't a curse, but the cross is a place of glory and of his goodness. And do you know what that is? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 5 points us back to the resurrection. Verse 5 says that there is coming a time after the crucifixion where Jesus is going to be resurrected and return to the glory from which he left. All right, we go to John 1 1, right? The Gospel of John opens that, that beautiful passage, right? Matthew, we get, we get genealogy. But John 1, we get that beautiful opening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where was Jesus in the beginning? He was with God. Why? Because He was God. Then we get to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among His people. What happened? Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, steps out of heaven, as we know in Philippians 4, and He, he takes on the form of a servant. He roads Himself with flesh. He comes and He lives that sinless life. And here in John, He's saying, the hours come where I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to glorify you on the cross. You're going to glorify me. And at the same time, instead of it being a curse, as your Word says, the resurrection, when I walk out of the tomb on the third day, is going to be vindication that the cross is a place of glory and not a place of shame. If God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't do something, then the cross would be a place of shame. But the resurrection proves Jesus is who He is. It proves that He is God. The resurrection proves that God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. And it's what makes it a thing of glory. 
and not something of shame. How do we see God's glory today? What is the most visible demonstration of God's glory for us to, to see today? Is it, is it the sunrise over Pilot Mountain? I mean, that, that's, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, is it Sawyer and them being baptized today? That's amazing. That's a display of God's glory. There are so many ways that we can see it. But what is the most visible way, the greatest demonstration of God's glory that we can see, that we know today? It's the cross. It is the cross. Because on the cross, we see God's goodness on display. You remember that scripture in Hebrews 1.3 that says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? Jesus is the radiance then of, of, of God's goodness? So when we look at Jesus, we see God's goodness. When we look at the cross, we see God's goodness. And if you really want to think about it, in one of those sentences that sounds funny to say, when we look at the cross, what we see is God's goodness hanging on God's goodness. That's what the cross is. It's not a place of shame. It is a place of goodness and a demonstration of God's glory. And Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And while I'm hanging on the cross, God, because I am the radiance of you, because I am the radiance of your glory, when people look at me hanging on the cross, what they're really seeing is your goodness on display for the entire world. And in my obedience, I am going to glorify you. And according to your word and your promise, you're going to glorify me. And now that cross, it becomes a thing of beauty, a thing of glory. And Jesus prays, Father, glorify me as I glorify you. It's what he wants to do. It's what's going to happen. And look at what it says in verse 2. Because in verse 2, it tells us, that his goodness is that he secures eternal life, right? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. Jesus has the authority over all flesh. That means he is the ultimate authority on earth. He has authority over all of us. Every, everybody, even those who are not believers. He is the ultimate authority. He is the one that can make the decision. Right? You know this. When you go to return something in the store, right? And the clerk says, well, we can't return that. What do you do? You say, well, can I speak to a manager? You want the person with authority who can make that decision and make that determination. And here Jesus says, I have the authority to give life. He has the authority to give eternal life. No one else does. No one else can grant eternal life. There is no other way to have eternal life other than Jesus Christ granting you eternal life. And the interesting thing about eternal life is this is something that man has wanted since the very beginning. You go back and you look through history and, and man's quest for eternal life. 
We probably are most familiar with Ponce de Leon, right? Searching for the fountain of youth, trying to find it in Florida to drink from the fountain of youth so he could live forever. But before him, there was the Greek historian Herodotus in like 450 BC who wrote about a fountain of life. Is it Ty Cobb? Who, who is it? Which baseball player is, is like frozen? And there a baseball player that's frozen so that hopefully they can figure out what was wrong and bring you back. Maybe it's not Ty Cobb, but I really think there's one. All right, how many movies do you see about eternal life? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is about finding the Holy Grail so that they could have eternal life. Man wants eternal life. Groucho Marx probably said it best, I intend to live forever or at least die trying. Right? It's, it's, it's what we want. It's, it's what we, we, we desire. But it doesn't matter what we do. Right? It doesn't matter how much we exercise. It doesn't matter what foods we eat. It doesn't matter about all the marketing of feel younger, look younger, be rejuvenated, this, that, and the other. There is nothing that we can do to acquire eternal life because there is only one who can grant it, and that is Jesus Christ. And so even though he is getting ready to go to the cross, he recognizes that on the cross he will be reigning and giving eternal life to all who come. And as all who come and have eternal life, again, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. But here's the question, or another one. I forget which question I'm on this morning. If I were to ask you this morning, describe eternal life, how would you answer that question? Just, just, just somebody. Somebody be bold enough to answer it for me. Describe eternal life. That is 100% how most people are going to describe it. A life with no end. Okay. Question number two, which is probably question number eight. Is every human being an eternal being? Yes, we are. Whether you die as a believer or a non-believer, there is life after death. So eternal life then, when Jesus says, I have the authority to grant eternal life, can't really mean just that you live forever. Does that make sense? There has to be something else that Jesus means that he alone has the authority to grant when he says, I have the authority to grant eternal life. What does eternal life mean? It, it, it means that there is, it's more about a quality of life than how long life lasts. Yeah, yes. It does mean everlasting. But when Jesus says this, there's something else to it. Now here's the beauty. He defines it for us. Did you catch that when we were reading through this? Did you catch that Jesus describes eternal life for us? Look at what he says. All authority, I have authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life. Don't you love it when God is playing? <laughs> and this is eternal life, right? That they know you, the only 
true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life then? It is knowing God. It is knowing Jesus Christ who God sent. That is eternal life. To know God. Now, when we think about knowledge, so many times we know stuff that honestly, it's just, it, it doesn't, we just, we just know stuff. Just random bits of information. Right? Alana is great at this. Alana has so many random facts that we actually named it. We called it RAFs, random Alana facts. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. The family will do that. Because she just, it's like, that's interesting. It means nothing. Right? Here, here, here's one, for example. She knows, she knows what I'm talking about. Here's a piece of knowledge that means nothing, but I just find it interesting. Y'all know the movie Oppenheimer? Have y'all heard, y'all heard this movie, right? The IMAX version of the film is 11 miles long. That means if you were to start the one end of the film right here, it would stretch all the way past LJV Coliseum. I know that. It means nothing. <laughs> right? So knowing God can't just be some intellectual knowledge that you just know God. It also can't be on the other side some secret knowledge. You hear this a lot of times with, with cults and false religions, that they have a, a, a secret knowledge of God. And if you would know this, this secret knowledge, then, then you can know God. you got the inside track. Well, that's not it either. Because how to know God is clearly and plainly spelled out in His Word. He says to know God is to know Jesus. And the only way to know God and to know Jesus is through the revelation that we have in His Word. Yes, the heavens declare God's glory. Yes, the heavens tell us that there is a God. Yes, we can know about God from observing the world. But the only way that we can know Him is through the words that we have in Scripture. And when we know God... And again, remember, y'all know this, right? Jesus was Jewish. So were his disciples. So when Jesus is using words, there's going to be a Hebraic understanding of what Jesus means. And to know God then in the Hebrew was again the wholeness and fullness of life. Where it is your entire life is based on and living for God. It is, it is an intimate term that you can know God, that you can have a personal relationship with Him. I mean, after all, is that not the promise of the new covenant? That we can know Him, that no longer will they teach our neighbor to say to one another, know Yahweh, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. That's what it means to know God. So that our whole life then is centered around Him. And when we know God, and we specifically know Him through the relationship that is mediated through Jesus Christ on the cross, we have eternal life. And eternal life is a life of enjoyment. Right? It's enjoying God now and for all eternity. It's enjoying His new mercies daily. 
It's basking in His goodness. It's a life of enjoyment because we have a Father in heaven who listens, and that brings us joy. Eternal life is a life of growth. Right? We, we grow in love and devotion to God. We grow in obedience to His commands. We grow, yes, in the knowledge of God. We grow in participation of the mission to share the gospel. We grow in relationships with one another because we are brothers and sisters. And so in Christ, our family becomes exponentially larger. Eternal life is a life of richness. And, and I don't mean riches. I mean riches, richness. I say richer, fuller life because we have Jesus. As we read in 1 Corinthians 3.21, it says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. We have Christ, and that makes, means we have a rich life. Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, says that, For all promises of God find their yes in Him. That's a rich life that no amount of money can provide. Eternal life means a life of rest, right? Augustine put it this way, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And is that not what Jesus says to all of you who are laboring, who are heavy burdened? Come to me, and I will give you rest. And when he's talking about that, he's specifically referring to the, everybody trying to find and, and make and work their way into heaven. And you can't do it. Someone's going to pray longer. Somebody's going to have a thicker Bible. Somebody's going to have more highlights in their Bible. Somebody's going to give more. Somebody's going to be at more events. It's always somebody better than you when it comes to being, quote-unquote, a good Christian. And Jesus looks and says, come to me. Rest in me. You don't need to do that. And every time I think about the fact that we're called to rest in Jesus, I immediately go to an old hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting. I love that hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. If you've never heard that hymn, go home and look it up. It's a beautiful hymn. But that's what we're called to do. That's, that's eternal life. That we rest in Jesus. And we will rest in Jesus for all eternity. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. Father, I'm going to go glorify you and, and you're going to glorify me because on the cross, I am going to call people to me whom you have given and I'm going to give them eternal life, a life that is a, a life of joy and growth and richness and rest. And what is so incredibly beautiful about that is that's the life we were created for. That's the life that God created us to have. And when we understand that we are created for eternal life, and not just an everlasting life, though that is part of it, but we were created to have that intimate knowledge of God. What is eternal life? To know God. That we were created to know Him. 
then we will come to understand that when we read these first five verses in John, that our number one priority in our life then is to glorify God. That's our priority. In every aspect, every moment of our life, should be lived in knowing that we are bringing glory to God. That's what we have to do. It's what we're called to do. And if we have that eternal life, then that's what we want to do. A few years back, I can't, I'd have to go back, and I probably should know this off the top of my head, was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and when, we, when that rolled around in October... Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther nails the 99 theses to the, the church door. When, when that rolled around, we, we went through and looked at, uh, we had a series called Sola. Y'all may remember that. And it was like Sola Fide, Sola Gratis, Sola in Christus, Faith, Grace, Sola Gratis. But the last one is Sola Deo Gloria. It was the fifth part of the Reformation. And what it means is, Glory to God alone. That as we study Scripture, it, is, it draws us to the fact that all glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God. And His creation, and especially His believers, are called to give that glory back to Him. And as He calls us to do that, He enables us and equips us to glorify Him through our life and every aspect of it. Well, Gary, my life's kind of mundane. Well, all our lives probably are. But we glorify God in that. We glorify God in work, in our relationships, in our worship, in our faith, in our service to Him, in our mission. Every aspect of our lives we glorify God. And we do that because we have partaken of the eternal life that Jesus provides for us. That He says He will give us. At the cross, for God's goodness, is hanging on God's goodness. And I'll end with this because I like the way that David says it in Psalm 34, 8 where he writes, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Jesus gives us that life. And it is a good life. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.